everyone. You're tuning in to Radical Good with your host, Rada Friedman. In this video podcast, we're going to explore the question, what will it take to get more resources into the hands of women and girls, especially women and girls of color, women and girls who are queer, women and girls with disabilities, or all of the above? How can we be more intersectional and inclusive? I've spent two decades working on gender equality issues all over the world. And the universal truth that I've seen is that when you invest in women and girls, it creates a ripple effect of benefits that spread through her family, through her community, and ultimately through the world. We'll talk with powerhouse women and some male-bodied allies to hear inspiring stories and learn some practical ways that we can use the resources we have at our disposal to advance progress on equality by spending like it matters, giving like it matters, and investing like it matters so we can really narrow the gender wealth gap. I'm talking today with Sachi Chinoy. Sachi is the co-founder of Upaya Social Ventures. It's an organization that picks up where microlending leaves off by helping people who are living in poverty to build businesses and scale them with investment and consulting support. If you haven't heard about microlending, which is also known as microcredit or microfinance, it provides basic financial services on a very small scale to historically marginalized populations that do not meet the criteria to do business with conventional banking institutions. About 75% of people who use microfinance are women. And that's because 70% of the world's poorest are women for all of the reasons we talk about on this podcast. And in global development, we often hear people talk about this as the feminization of poverty. There are 1 billion women in the world right now without any access to a savings account and necessary credit. Women have been restricted from accessing credit and other financial services at banks. And really, it was not that long ago that women in the US couldn't open a bank account or get a credit card without their husband's permission. Thank you, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Commercial banks have historically focused on men, neglecting women whose work is often considered to be part of the informal economy. In other words, it's not counted. And so women had no choice but to hide their money under the mattress and they were unable to benefit from earning interest or accessing loans. So microcredit changed all of that in the 70s by providing small loans or microloans to women who were poor and considered unbankable. And these loans enabled women with the capital they needed to start a business. And over decades, it's grown into a macro phenomenon. Sachi's organization, Upaya, identifies some of these early stage entrepreneurs who have the greatest potential for job creation in their communities. Sachi co-founded Upaya in 2011, served as its executive director for the first five years, then its chief impact officer for the next five, and now she serves on the board of directors. Before co-founding Upaya, Sachi spent three years at Unitas, a microfinance accelerator. And before that, Sachi worked at SKS Microfinance, which is now known as Bharat Financial Inclusion, an organization providing small loans to women in India that quickly grew to become the biggest in the country and the world's second listed microlender. Interestingly, I too worked at SKS, though our paths never crossed there. I was the first full-time employee and Sashi joined a few years after I left. But when Sashi and I discovered that we had both worked there, we had some very intense conversations because SKS had an epic meltdown that will likely become a mini-series one day. I interviewed Sashi for this podcast back in 2020. Like many of you listening, whew, 2020 was a raging dumpster fire. I, I had some personal losses 
And unfortunately, this podcast project had to be put on the back burner while I tried to hold everything together. So when Sashi shares in this interview the incredible impact that Upaya has seen investing in 21 entrepreneurs who collectively helped create over 15,000 jobs, just know that that number has since grown to 29 entrepreneurs and over 24,000 jobs created. If you enjoy this episode today, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and don't forget to give this podcast a five-star rating and review. Okay, let's jump into the episode. I am so excited to be able to talk with you today, Sashi, and thank you so much for joining me in this conversation for this video podcast, Radical Good, which is really an opportunity to help people think about how they can really give with meaning, all the things that they can do from volunteering to investing to putting their money in small businesses to giving to nonprofit organizations. And I'm, I'm particularly excited to be talking with you because your career has so many beautiful illustrations of the kind of impact that, that one can have in the world, especially when you're focusing on looking at communities who have disproportionately suffered or had barriers to the kinds of opportunities that others have had. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know who you are already, you are one of the co-founders and also currently a board member of Upaya Social Ventures. And before that, you were with Unitas, which was one of the very first microfinance accelerators out there that was helping to accelerate microfinance organizations doing incredible work, investing in, um, in poor communities and poor women who often did not have access to any kind of banking by really helping them grow quickly. And before that, you, of course, were working with uh, a small microcredit organization that went big very quickly yes. called SKS. And this is where our stories grow together because I also worked at SKS long ago. I was the first full-time employee back when it was just a husband and wife startup organization. So um, we have that shared history together. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I wondered if you could just... Um, start the conversation by talking a little bit about your journey. How did you land here at this organization, Upaya Social Ventures, which has been now recognized at the Clinton Global Initiative and the Wall Street Journal, et cetera? How did you land here? Yes, so, so first of all, thank you, Rada. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, this is obviously you know, a topic I care so deeply about. So. I am amazed whenever I say this, but Upaya is very nearly a decade old. And when I uh, co-founded this back in uh, 2010, 2011, I had just come out of the microfinance industry. And as you mentioned, uh, I was just exiting uh, Unitas at the time. Um, and I had entered Unitas having worked on the ground in India with SKS microfinance. And me um, wanting to start Upaya was really uh, because of, you know, certain gaps that I had seen on the ground when I was working in microfinance. And don't get me wrong, I think microfinance is a wonderful vehicle. I have seen all the transformation it has helped to bring about, um, but it can't be all things to all poor people. Uh, there are certain things it's very good at, and then there are certain gaps that I felt really needed to be addressed. And one of those key gaps was how it supported entrepreneurs. And so obviously the very premise of microfinance or microcredit, I should say, 
is the ability of an organization to give one individual a very small loan. And so you can think of loans um, like in the sizes of $500, maybe $1,000 at most. But to one poor individual, um, that can be you know, such a lifeline because a woman can take that and maybe just start a very small enterprise, uh, a sole proprietorship, if you will. And so the women that I was working with when I was based in Delhi, uh, had ideas to start like a small bangal making business in their homes or set up a tea stall uh, right outside the slum and sell tea to people passing by. Um, and so obviously you have these, uh, you know, small, small business ideas uh, that these small loans were able to give rise to. The problem was if you had an idea for a bigger type of business, a more scaled up version of that, the kind of business that could create jobs for others, not just you as the one entrepreneur, that's where microfinance hit its limits. Mm -hmm. um, microfinance as a model finds it very difficult to give loans beyond $1,000. And so um, when I was you know, trying to grow our microfinance operation, I'd come across a lot of entrepreneurs who already had a small business. Maybe they had employed five or eight people and they had a going concern, but they were asking for funds more like in the $25,000 range, which made sense because they needed to buy machinery, they needed to really invest, they needed to grow to the next level, and they weren't able to really deal with a $1,000 loan. It just was way too small. And I was completely unable to help these businesses. It was beyond the scope of what we could do as a microfinance organization, but I could see the potential. And I was thinking, wow, if they could just get access to that capital, they could create hundreds of jobs. And entrepreneurs at that level, you know, what we call the missing middle, those small and mid-sized businesses, were completely starved for capital. There was nobody that was financing in that range. So um, when I transitioned out of microfinance, I said, I wonder if I can set up a company that just focuses on this sector with a goal of creating jobs for the most marginalized. And so we started Upaya, we started by crowdfunding, quite honestly. I still remember, you know, opening our bank account with $600 in it and just slowly building it up, slowly building a support base and uh, testing this with a few uh, really passionate and committed entrepreneurs. And I always kept thinking, okay, if we fail or if the model just doesn't make sense or if people aren't really bought into it, I could always close this up and go get a real job. But I at least want to, I, I want to try because I saw a need and I want to see if I can fill it. And now we are still here 10 years later. We've invested in 21 entrepreneurs, um, half of who are women, I'm really proud to say. And between these 21 businesses, they've created over 15,000 jobs, which to me, you know, just really proves out our vision of you empower a few good entrepreneurs and you can empower thousands of other people uh, through them. I love love, love everything about what Upaya is doing, in part because you really are getting at this missing section. These are people who are 
too big for a microcredit loan of a small amount of money, but they're not yet big enough to take in a major investment from a bank and there's nobody there to help those people. And so you end up with this disparity um, and the people that you're investing in, these are job creators. These are creating jobs for their entire communities. It's really something I think more people should be thinking about when they're, they're looking at the places where they want to put their money to create the, the greatest good for strong communities to thrive. Um, and so there's a piece of microcredit um, within all of this or as part of the investment model that really drew me in initially. And I don't, I'm curious to know if you had the same experience. I don't know if you've had the same experience, but I walked into microcredit thinking, this is the panacea. Like, this is the silver bullet. All we have to do are find the most disenfranchised, vulnerable people, which are going to be women of color living in poverty and give them money and all of the world's problems will be solved. And of course, it took me about 30 seconds to get schooled by many of these women um, to understand that in fact, there are systems and structures that have been built um, to ensure that they stay in poverty. And that in fact, it was much more complicated than that. And I still, um, from that moment have been searching for what are the the levers what are the things that are going to help women and, and girls to get out of um, these situations and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on that about the importance of investing in women in particular mm -hmm. sure yes and i got schooled in exactly the same way <laughs> It's, um, it's like eating humble pie, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and certainly, I mean, I would say as early as, what, uh, 15 years ago, uh, this was considered the silver bullet and everyone all over the world was so excited. And um, as I said before, I, I still, I, I, I don't want to discount or downplay the power that microcredit has had. Mm -hmm. um, I think we all just see it with a more nuanced lens now, you know, knowing what it can do and what it can't do. But I think um, a few things to answer your question. Um, first of all, we have to realize that we shouldn't paint marginalized populations, especially women and girls, with the same broad brushstroke, right? Yes. It is not a uniform segment. Um, as much as it would make our lives much more simple uh, to say, okay, this segment of the population has similar needs and they all need the same thing, it's simply not true. Um, a lot of the women that I worked with, some of them definitely had an entrepreneurial instinct and they were hungry for a small loan, they had ideas or they had connections and so they were very quickly able to take capital and put it to work within a week, right? But I would say, honestly, there were more that didn't have that entrepreneurial tendency. Mm. And it's as if we were to say, every one of us is an entrepreneur, or every one of us ought to be an entrepreneur. And we know that's not the case. Some of us want that and are hungry for that, and others, we're perfectly content uh, to say, no, I want a steady, stable job where I can fully exhibit my talents and my skills. And that is more um, to my liking. And so there were a lot of women that when I would talk about what microcredit can do for them said, I don't want a loan, I want a job. My first priority is putting food on the table for my kids or sending my kids to school. And I'd, 
I'd hear so many stories about how even if their husbands were earning, the, the money wasn't coming back into the household the way the woman wanted to. So she was desperate to earn. And when you put the burden of entrepreneurship on every one of these women, you're adding to their stress level in many ways. Now, yes, they want to earn and entrepreneurship can be a vehicle for that. But if they don't have the idea or the wherewithal to, you know, very quickly set up a business and um, start earning, now you've put a debt burden on them. You're making them uh, figure out what that business ought to be. Can it be successful? And as we all know, by being entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship is very volatile. And you're adding volatility to an already volatile situation. Whereas if you can plug that woman into a job where she will get uh, training, she will get benefits, she will get a fixed salary, you know, suddenly adding stability into her life. And not only that, but especially for women and girls, you're giving them a, a safe place to be as well. Because for many of them, the home is not the safest place, but they can seek refuge in their work environment. They can get mentored. They have a social structure that can really help them work through their problems. And most importantly, they can start to be breadwinners. Mm -hmm. And the most, you know, the, the most amazing things that I see when I interact with some of our job holders and when I talk to them is when they say, the dynamics in my home have changed over the last few years. I am bringing in a steady paycheck every week and it is, you know, more predictable. It is more stable than what the, the work my husband's able to find. Mm -hmm. And now I am being able to make decisions and I am being taken seriously. Of course, this might take time, especially in a lot of the communities that we work with, but it is happening. And, and I think that's one of the best ways of, of being able to, uh, you know, really empower them is by giving them a voice by giving them this this economic opportunity i love that so much because i think there's been a very big data gap for a long time um and the kinds of information that we've been collecting about whether investing in women and small businesses works is based on an incomplete picture of what it's actually providing. And when I was doing both microcredit work and working on helping women get secure property rights, I would find this all the time. We were going out there and collecting this information, but initially the kind of data that we were collecting was how many households are getting land, not who within the household actually gets to say how the land is used and how the income from the land is actually gonna be spent on the family. And so often I would go out to collect information about how people's lives had changed now that they had secure land rights. And the things that the women were talking about had nothing to do with like how much produce they were selling in the marketplace now that they had a secure plot of land to grow food on. It was about their decision-making power and their autonomy and their voice within the household, the respect that other people in the community gave them. Mm -hmm. um, and I really hope that going forward, more people center that in the work that they're doing because it's so critically empowerment that that, that foundation is so undervalued and so, so, so important. I wonder because of 
these various um, roles that you've taken with SKS, with Unitas, and with Upaya, if you have a story that you could share that would really kind of bring this to light, that would illustrate this. I, wow, I feel like I have so many stories and I'm trying to think through if there is one that would really capture the essence of this. Um, I, I remember, I think it was back in 2012 when we had made our first investment in a dairy company in the state of Uttar Pradesh in uh, North India. And I had spent a lot of time in the field with this particular entrepreneur and was really going out of my way to talk to especially his first 50 job holders. And it was a dairy company, but we had made the decision instead of creating a central facility where um, mostly women would come and milk the cows and you know package the milk and everything, that it would be better to distribute the cows to various households. So by virtue of being an employee of this company, you were given a, a dairy cow that you would keep on your property. And then that way the, the women could manage all their household obligations and milk the cow and be able to distribute it. Uh, to the network that would come by twice a day and, and pick up the milk from them. And I was very interested to see how this was working. And I still remember this vividly. I went to our very first job holder's house. <laughs> Her name uh, was Suman. And uh, she had been employee number one. And she lived in this mud and thatch home. Uh, she had set up a makeshift shed for the cow that she had just gotten. And I had met her a week earlier, uh, but she had been very shy. And uh, especially when she, somebody had told her I was visiting from the U.S. And that, you know, um, that had unfortunately created a bit of distance. She was very reluctant to talk to me. And I, I think she was af afraid of being judged. Um, but when I went back about a week later, she was, you know, very chatty. She was so enthusiastic. She wanted me to come in. She wanted me to sit down and have chai with her. And her mother-in-law was there. And very openly in front of her mother-in-law, she said, I'm, I'm earning and I am able to make decisions. And even my mother-in-law is listening to me now. Wow. <laughs> That's huge. <laughs> and um, anyone that knows, you know, very traditional um, uh, how, you know, Indian households and the extended family set up and the mother and daughter-in-law dynamic can probably attest to how powerful that was. And just within a span of a few days. Wow. And just the confidence that she was brimming with. And her mother-in-law just chuckled and nodded. Um, but I, I thought, hmm, this... I, I can feel the, the balance, you know, definitely tipping. And of course, the, the, these things take time, but just the fact that the women were aware of that and just that noticeable confidence that I saw as opposed to just a week earlier, that had really stuck with me. And um, for, for the first few years at Upaya, we would tell someone's story and we would share you know, some of the photographs from that visit that I had taken. Um, it just, you know, as, as kind of an anecdote of how powerful this could be. Mm. 
I love that story. That's, that's beautiful. I'm, I wonder if I'm thinking about all of the people who may potentially be listening who haven't really heard of microcredit, um, or maybe if they have, they know a little bit about it. Um, because, of course, Muhammad Yunus, who yeah. started the Grameen Bank, won the Nobel Prize. And that's really, I think, what made it shine for most people. They hadn't heard of it before then. Um, but I wonder if you could um, maybe just give a brief summary for anybody listening about why you think it's important to invest in this kind of thing, in microcredit or in an organization like Upaya. I think one of the most important things we can do as we fight poverty, so for anyone who cares about eradicating poverty, we have to bring financial services to the base of the pyramid. Um, and as much as I, I don't like uh, that particular phrase, you know, there most certainly is a, a segment of society that is completely unbanked. Mm -hmm. And if, if I just think about my day-to-day -day life, right, I have access to bank accounts. I have a savings account that I can use. I have credit cards that I use very frequently. So I'm always you know, taking out loans to kind of stretch my own budget and purchase the things that I need because I might not have cash today. And without all of these financial tools at our fingertips, what would we have been able to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, why do we expect people living in poverty to be able to, you know, lift themselves up by the bootstraps or whatever idealistic view we have if they don't have basic financial tools? And so what I like to tell people is microcredit definitely solved a huge need whereby, you know, if, if you're one of these women and you have an idea or you, you have the inclination to do something productive, there was no way on earth that somebody would lend you money, except maybe your local loan shark. And then you get indebted and it gets into an exploitative relationship and all these horrible things happen. If that's your only option, then it's no wonder you, you don't take someone up on it and you remain you know, just working within your home and not having an opportunity to earn. And so just making these small loans available really flipped a switch, I think. And that was the start of bringing other like micro financial services to bear. So now you see a rise of savings accounts for people which is extremely important because where else do people keep the earnings that they now have, right? And how, how do they keep it safe? Mm -hmm. You have insurance products, which I would argue the poor need even more than we do, you know, because of all the, um, the, the critical emergencies that they face. So I'm, I'm happy that that is, we're starting to see more of that. And now you need to balance this financial portfolio out by making larger loans and other financial products available. So for example, back in 2010, I was hard pressed to find anybody funding a small and mid-sized business with an equity product. Mm. That really felt like it was unheard of. And with equity, equity is more patient than with just a straight loan, right? Mm -hmm. If the entrepreneur is okay giving us like 5% ownership of his or her business, 
then we can give them $25,000, $50,000 as growth capital. And what we're telling them is, okay, five to seven years from now, we want this to come back. We do want to exit our investment. And whatever we exit, we'll put towards uh, a new investment, which is why it's important for us to be able to exit it. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to be the typical funder where we're going to push for high returns at the expense of everything else. Um, we want this capital to grow with you. And so I see Upaya being a very important part of that whole you know, mix of financial products that quite frankly, those of us you know, that live in this economic segment have always had, and we probably take it for granted, now it's time to, to make all of those things available to the poor. Mm, I love that, thank you. You know, I'm thinking about how so many people right now are looking for ways that they can give back. And what I'm encouraging is for people to really be thinking more broadly about what is the kind of world that they really want to see. Because during these COVID times that have us doing this interview over Zoom instead of you know, together in a room, um, they really just have been magnifying the inequities in our systems. And I really encourage people to, to be thinking differently about how they're giving right now. Um, you know, giving does not necessarily just have to be to uh, 501c3. Giving might be supporting the small business nearby that really needs it. Giving also should really be, I think, with an eye towards the kind of world that we want to create. Because I think there is a global reset that is coming. And I think that women are going to be centered in it very differently, particularly women of color. So I'm really encouraging people to think about those kinds of things um, when they invest. And I know that um, in light of the coronavirus situation, Upaya has had to change its strategy too. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this um, three-wave strategy that you've created to respond. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it was about two weeks ago, I wrote a blog post about this, just in case it would be helpful as like, like a frame for other people to think through as they are thinking about how they should pivot. Because I think all of us are being called upon right now to be uh, to be able to adapt, right, and pivot what we were doing previously to meet the needs. And so we are thinking about this in three phases. The first is just immediate relief, right, um, because that's really what people, especially in India during the lockdown and the economic crisis that has created, mm. they need avenues of immediate relief. And so um, we are helping in a few ways there. Um, My team in India has done a fantastic job of compiling a list of rapid response funding, um, a lot of these grant programs that have just been created overnight, and we are actually helping our partner businesses apply to them, just so it's one less thing that they have to worry about. Mm. Uh, We're also helping them with their own fundraising campaigns. We are uh, working with them to take the funding that we have given them and deploy it more as, say, you know, paid leaves for staff or advances on salaries. Because we know that the most important thing we can do right now is uh, for the poor to feel that they will still get paid. You know, even if the job isn't happening, even if the business has been put on hold, they, they need that cash coming in. Um, 
if they don't have liquidity, um, they, they are really going to find themselves in a dire situation. So we just want to make sure that incomes still flow no matter what. Um, in that second wave, we call it job stabilization. And that means that, you know, the 15,000 jobs or so that we've created in our portfolio, we, we realize, unfortunately, that we may lose some of them, you know, in this, in this period. But we want to do everything we can to preserve as many as we can. And what that means is we need to support the businesses. And so we've gotten very creative with our own investment strategy. You know, like I said, we used to provide traditional equity and long-term equity for businesses. And uh, we have gotten more creative with very flexible loan structures now. You know, loans say between 20 to 30 to $40,000 just to uh, act as bridge financing, mm -hmm. just to get a business through the next three to six months, because nobody knows what's going to happen in the next three to six months. So, so we're giving, you know, this, this line um, to businesses that we think most need it. And we're telling them deploy it as you see fit, right? And then the third wave is what I like to call job creation. Because one thing that's for sure is once the lockdown is lifted, once things slowly start to recover, whatever our new reality is going to be, the, the one thing we know for sure is that we are going to need jobs. Mm -hmm. We are going to need jobs to replace those that were lost. We're going to have many more people uh, coming back into the workforce that badly need an income. And so we are also now building a pipeline of new companies that we think have a lot of potential especially in a post-COVID world, those that rely more on home-based work, those that are being very creative about still maintaining social distancing, if that's still going to be a thing a year from now. Uh, and we want to be ready to just invest in them and create these jobs as quickly as we can. Yeah. So it's amazing. Eight weeks ago, we wouldn't have been thinking about this. We had a standard product and a standard way we were supporting entrepreneurs. And we've completely had to pivot, um, you know, just with the notion of how can we alleviate the most critical needs now and then be in a good position a few months from now. I, I love this so much. I think this is a really brilliant strategy. And actually, as you're talking, I'm realizing you're the first person that I've heard talk about that third wave response. Most people are still thinking about immediate response. Like, what can I do right now to stem the bleeding? Um, but it makes me think about another friend of mine who's, um, who does a lot of writing and blogging and posting about what it's like being a woman of color living with a disability and how the first thing that she noticed was how quickly companies are now allowing employees to work from home when they always said this could never be possible before, right? And for people who are struggling with excess issues, uh, you know, during these times when there's limited transportation right now, buildings aren't necessarily open, they've cl closed off the parts of the buildings that have accessibility ramps, et cetera. Um, that is really, really powerful and meaningful. And so I have been thinking, I wonder who is going to be out there thinking about 
how we make jobs more accessible for people who are home-based, which for a lot of people may be women, and um, also how we make this more accessible for people with, with disabilities. And this is the first time that I've really heard somebody thinking about what that strategy is going to look like. So I love that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. So I have two more questions. They're sort of related. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of combine them together. Um, one of them is, who do you really look to for inspiration, especially when things are just crazy? Is there somebody like that you find yourself? And the second part of the question is, who else do you think that I should interview on this podcast? <laughs> sure. So the, the, this might be a strange answer to your first question, but uh, someone that I've always admired and someone whose life story I will always find fascinating. And I can't seem to read enough about her is Helen Keller. Mm -hmm. I had first been introduced to Helen Keller's story when I was in fourth grade, uh, because we all had a class project to, you know, do some research and uh, do a presentation to the class about, you know, key and notable figures from history. And I had randomly been assigned Helen Keller, and at the age of nine, I hadn't heard of her. But then I read her story. Um, I just had this insatiable curiosity about how she built a life and how much she managed to achieve without two of you know, her key senses. And it just really... I, I think it really ingrained in me this notion that you need not see these physical shortcomings as disabilities. And I don't think she ever saw it as holding her back. You know, she, she just kept blazing a trail and she found so many creative ways to overcome the fact that she was both um, blind and deaf. Um, and for someone like that to go on to a higher education and give speeches and you know just make all the remarkable progress she did um, including for women's rights and of course for disability rights i thought wow okay i never have an excuse to say that i can't do something and and if i can just get a little personal for a second uh you know i have also now been um you know, getting used to uh, my own physical disabilities. Uh, it was just a few years ago that I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, a neurological condition that has actually um, taken away a lot of the, I guess, physical abilities that I used to have. And I, I think of Helen Keller now more than ever. And I was just rereading her biography the other day. And it's always just the inspiration that I need that no, I don't think any, any of us should um, sit on our laurels. And there's always going to be another way to do something. We, we just have to be creative. Okay, well, of course, I've talked your ear off this entire time. <laughs> but I've loved everything that you've had to say and to share. And um, it's just so valuable, the work that you've done. And I know that the people listening are going to be really excited to learn more about Upaya and to hopefully think differently about where they can invest in meaningful ways to make greater opportunities for all. So thank you so much.
Thank you so much, Radha. This was such a pleasure. Um, and I, I wish you all the best with this series. I think what you're doing is super, super important, especially in this new era that we're living in. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, take care. You too. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If today's conversation piqued your curiosity, please comment below, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. And let me know your suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear from. Also, follow me on social media. The links will be in the show notes. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter on my website at www.radafriedman.org. If you want to be inspired, think big, and take action to advance gender equality, then subscribe to this podcast to hear more inspiring stories and tips on how we can close the gender wealth gap. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.